that are in the eastern half of South Dakota. And uh, so just in the past year, we've had three pastors that left us. Uh, one, of course, was Steve Walter, the Vermillion pastor, yeah. from Dancer back in March. Um, so that church is still uh, in the process of, of finding uh, a new person to lead that church. And then I shared with all of you not too long ago that the Yoder family from Watertown, they went to Germany to serve uh, there. And then Pastor Myron and his wife, Kit, that were in this met for really, I think, less than two years. Uh, they came to this met to pastor there, and then her mother got sick in Florida, and they decided to move to Florida to take care of her. So this morning, and, and when Pastor Myron was getting ready to leave, and I found out where he was going, I know of a church down there in Florida, because uh, he didn't have a he didn't have a new job yet when I got down there when we went. So, but I know of a church in Tampa. This morning during Sunday school, I got a text from my friend Stuart from Florida. He said, Pastor Myron's here. I have to tell you that it gave me a nice feeling to know that this morning Pastor Myron was at a great church where they will love him and hear the word preached and be refreshed. And I'm thankful that you're here this morning to hear the word of God preached, to be encouraged, to be refreshed, and to be shown the love of God. It's a privilege to be your pastor here. And uh, I think that, that is just an illustration of how broad God's church is and how relationships extend even beyond our local community, which is wonderful. So this morning we're getting back into the book of Romans. We'll be at the first part of Romans chapter 15. The title of the message is how to, how to Have Harmony in the Church. How to Have Harmony in the Church. The big idea is if you think you're strong, you must examine your attitude towards those you feel are weak. If you feel that you're strong in the faith, that is, you must examine your attitude toward those who you feel are weak. Now, to start out and get us thinking a little bit, we've all had different jobs. Some of us have been in the military. Some of you have been on sports teams and different ways where there was a leader of some sort, whether a coach or whether a sergeant or whether a boss that had the job of trying to get you to do a good job, had the job of trying to teach you to do your job better all the time. And my question is, you don't have to shout out an answer, just think about this, would you rather be shouted at and ridiculed every time you made a mistake, or would you rather receive encouragement in a positive manner? You know, positive reinforcement versus Negative reinforcement. Can shame build people up in the Lord? Or is there a better way? Now, before we jump into chapter 15, it's good to see where we've been. Remember, this is all in context. And we took a week of break last week from Romans. So it was two weeks ago and three weeks ago we were in chapter 14. And Paul was talking about the weak brother. Who is the weak one? According to Paul, the weak one is the one who feels the need to have rigid rules for living that are not necessarily required by some statute that God's given, but rather their conscience requires that of them. In the specific context there was Jewish believers who came to Christ. They maybe could understand in their mind that they didn't have to keep those 
ceremonial laws anymore, but they felt in their conscience that this is what I should do. And so I used the example of bacon. Uh, if a Jewish believer felt they couldn't have bacon, Paul said, then don't do it, because that would be violating your conscience. That's actually the, the, the big concern he had. But that doesn't make you strong, Paul said. The one who has to keep those rules for themselves is actually the one who's weaker, as opposed to the one who has freedom in Christ to eat. The strong one is the one who believes in his liberty in Christ, and he feels fine with things like that, because they're not statutory, they're not written in Scripture, it says you have to do this, you have to do that, and so those are what we call either debatable matters or, or matters of conscience. And that one, who feels that they can eat the bacon, for example, should not try to force his ways on the weaker ones, because he would maybe cause them to violate their conscience. So not to use peer pressure or that sort of thing, say, oh, come on, if you were a stronger person, then you would be okay with this. No, Paul was very concerned that we do not violate our own conscience. He said each one should be convinced in their own mind. He said, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but it's a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So if you have the faith to eat certain meats that a weaker brother feels he can't eat, you're not to brag about it, you're not to make them feel bad, but you're to keep that between yourself and God, Paul says. Now, in that context, Paul continues now in chapter 15 to make a case that not only should those who think of themselves as strong keep that between themselves and God, and not cause another to stumble by causing them to violate their own conscience. He expands this into a broader concept of unity in the church. So I'm going to read Romans 15, 1 through 7, and then we'll get into breaking it down a bit. So continuing again from 14, where he's talked about all this thing about meat and drink, now he says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each one of us, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. For whose glory? For the glory of God. So you can see now Paul spent that whole chapter 14 talking about this stuff about weaker brother and stronger brother. Now he gets to really what I think is the crux of the matter that really it's about harmony in the church, and it's about living in such a way that we give glory to God because we're so unified and harmonious among each other. So I want to go verse by verse here and just look into this really deeply because it's a really important passage. From verse 1, we're strong, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Now, we'll define some terms here. I, we already spent the last two sermons, and I just recapped that, understanding who is the weak and who is the strong. 
And now we see that those who are strong, those ones who have such confidence in their faith that they can eat whatever they like without violating their own conscience, those strong ones, and in other matters too, have an obligation. What's an obligation? Obligation is a debt. You may recall from Romans 13, 8. Owe no one to anything except to what? Love one another. So obligation, debt, we have an obligation or debt. Now Paul is returning to this concept of having an obligation or debt to others. Where? In the church. He's talking about people in the church. So it doesn't mean we don't have obligations outside the church. But let's keep in mind that he's primarily talking here about in the church. An obligation to love, I've just read that from chapter 13, and here is an obligation that the strong bear with those who are weak. Now, we see the obligation or the debt we have is to bear with those that are weaker. This means take on the burden of or, or help carry the load of those ones. What are the strong to bear? The failings of, or you could have translated that the weaknesses of the weak. Now, this is not to imply that those weaker in faith are in a state of failure all the time, or that they're always messing up, or that they're super sinful. That's not the weakness Paul's talking about here. It isn't as though Paul is saying, oh, those weaker ones, they're the ones that sin a lot, so we're supposed to just allow for that because they're weak. That's not what he's saying. In fact, we see in many places in the New Testament that we are to take on sin as a challenge privately and also as the body of Christ. The weakness, then, that Paul is talking about here is not sin, per se. It's the conscience of one who feels restrained from doing certain behaviors. They're either unable or unwilling to give up on those traditions they have. So the strong need to bear with the weaknesses or failings of the weak and not to please themselves. So don't do it out of pride so that you can think to yourself and really, well, I'm so good to put up with these folks. I'm so patient, so virtuous. If only they knew how kind I am to put up with them. <laughs> no, that shouldn't be the attitude. The strong, if, if you are strong, then they need to be careful about not becoming prideful. That's pretty easy. Now, there's nothing wrong with being strong in faith. That's a good thing. But without care, soon pride can come in. And as you look down your nose at all those that you think are far beneath you in the faith, you may not be strong as you think. You may actually be the weak and prideful person. Don't mistake your own pride for strength in the faith. Don't mistake your own pride for strength in the faith. The truly strong of the faith, here's how you'll notice them. You will notice the truly strong in the faith by their humility more than their strength. There's an example for this, some of you know Steve Hammer. Uh, he used to work at our district office and now he's the interim pastor. A man of great strength, but humble. Humble man. His strength was shown by his humility. His outward strength. So if you are strong, don't go around bearing with others so that you can feel good and prideful. Why? Who should you do it for? You're doing it for them. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. Build him up or her up. 
So here it is. The church exists, of course, to bring glory to God, but the church also exists because God designed our salvation in such a way that he expects us not only to rely on him and his word to make it, but we are to rely on other believers as well. He made it that way, which is why we need each other. God designed our salvation that way. So we're not to give up meeting together, as it says in Hebrews, but we are to bear with one another. We're to build one another up. We're to encourage one another as long as it's called the day. Now, we just started this ministry for our youth called Lifeline so that our youth have opportunities to know each other, uh, others in their age group who love Jesus. And we called it Lifeline because Mackenzie came up with Lifeline, and I loved it because it mapped exactly what I was trying to get at, that we are a lifeline for each other. And the verse that we used for our theme is from Hebrews 3. And I'm going to read that verse, but I'm going to cram it into the context that's around it, because context is king, right? So the idea here is that we're, to, we're here for each other, to keep each other from falling, to keep each other from falling prey to being deceived by sin. So Hebrews 3, and I'll start at 12. Verse 13 is our theme verse for lifeline, but I'll start at 12. Take care, brothers, that lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In other words, we've got to make it together. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now, this passage I just read from Hebrews is a warning that appeals to scriptural history. We know what happened to God's people when they rebelled against him, when sin deceived them. We know God's word, and therefore we know that we have that potential as well. And therefore, we must protect each other by appealing to one another. Don't be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. We bear with each other in this way, not to please ourselves so that we can feel good about ourselves, but so that we can build others up in the family of Christ. Verse 3, for Christ did not please himself, but as is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So who's our example once again? Jesus. Jesus is always our primary example. He didn't please himself, but rather he allowed himself to be abased in order to accomplish the Father's will. Abased means humiliated. He was humiliated. So Jesus is being used by Paul here as an example for humility that leads to unity. In the book of Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verses 1 to 8, this tells us exactly what we're getting at. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, in one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or deceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so we see again, our example must be Christ. If we would be like him, we would willingly lay down our own will to serve others. Verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have what? Hope. Want to have hope today? <laughs> We've had a lot of conversations this morning already where people are questioning about whether we can have hope or not. And I know we can have hope because scripture tells us we can. Now remember what I said a moment ago about this passage from Hebrews. This is what Paul is saying. What we have written in God's word is for our instruction. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we can look at Hebrews and learn from that. Hebrews steers us back to the Old Testament and tells us some things we can learn there as well. All scripture is useful in this way. Whatever was written in former days, that is, scripture was written for our instruction. Why? That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, we see, and hopefully most of us know from experience, that these two things go together. If we want endurance, we need to look to scripture, for it reminds us constantly about not only the heroes of the faith, but also those who fell short as as a warning we're given their stories in Scripture. But Scripture reminds us of God's faithfulness. Scripture helps us with our endurance. And our endurance, coupled with the encouragement of the Scriptures, gives us opportunity to have hope. And our hope will never be put to shame. Verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So, through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And who is the God of endurance and encouragement? The God of the Scriptures. Now, this part of the passage is about prayer. Paul is praying, he's appealing to God. God, would you give to your church such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together they will glorify you with one voice. That's pretty good harmony. One voice. Where, If you've ever been in a congregation, and all of you have, sometimes there's a loud singer that's not really in tune with everyone else. Sometimes, and I was always taught, I sang in choir a few times over my life, and they said, you just want to blend. Sound like one voice. Paul is getting here. He's praying that the church would have this. So what does that do ultimately? If we're, if, we're, if we're giving glory to God in one voice, it glorifies Him, and that should be the desire of all of our hearts. So how do we deal with this? What do we take away from this scripture that we can apply right now to us? Well, first of all, 
I want to talk about the hierarchy of relationships that we should be laser focused on being in harmony. First, of course, is our relationship with God. We, we know that, right? We work on that. This is, you've probably heard it before. If you don't have a good relationship going this way, you're not going to have a good relationship going this way, right? That's the first for everyone, no matter where you're at, from child to older people to middle-aged people to whatever. Then, if you're married, the next highest relationship is with your spouse. Ephesians 5 shows parallels between the relationship between husband and wife and Christ and the church. We also see in scripture that marriage itself is an earthly illustration to us of the relationship between the father and the son. Although we do not have perfection in those relationships, we ought to be constantly striving for it. A marriage that is unholy, especially in the church, is a mockery to the entire concept of unity and harmony in the church. If the marriage is bad, then the other relationships will be unhealthy as well. So, married folks, you have an especially high bar to try to reach. You're called by God to do all that you can to obey this scripture. So my prayer for all the married folks is this. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Poor children, if you still live at home with your parents and you're under their care, you have a duty to do this as well. Ephesians 6, 1-4 says, Children, obey your parents to the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Of course, this harmony in the home goes both ways, right? Paul said fathers aren't to provoke their children to anger, but in the home we must all seek harmony. My prayer for all the families in the church is this. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that sound right? You can hear it more than once, I think. Next, we have to apply this in the church. Too often in the church, we allow differences to divide us rather than celebrating that look at this diverse group of people that God chose to save. So we each have preferences, right? Church ought to do this ministry or that ministry. We ought to sing this kind of music or that kind of music, and so on, right? Then we allow sometimes our differences to turn into irritations. And we allow these irritations to block our communication. And when we stop talking to one another, we're rejecting God's path of peace with one another. Rather than seeing how we are insisting on our own way, we look at everybody else and say, well, they're insisting on their way. It isn't me that needs to submit to others' preferences. They need to submit to mine. And on and on it goes. You know, it's one thing to have a church split over doctrine. It's quite another to have it just for bickering over different opinions. And who is it really who insists on their own ways? Is it the strong or is it the weak? 
Is it not the weak who must have it a certain way? So if you think of yourself as strong, then you are strong enough to be able to set aside your own preferences for the good and harmony of the church. So my prayer for the church is this. May the God of endurance and encourage me grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I realize there's other relationships I didn't go over here, but I covered what I thought were the most important ones that we have. And let me tell you this. A lot of folks are looking at the events around the world and they're disturbed right now. Our election revealed that we have about a 50-50 split in our nation in regards to certain values that people voted for. We see in some states the division is really bad, where the city values are voted for one way and the country another way, and there's this huge difference even within states. And actually, in every community, you'll find people who are at odds with each other, sadly, in some cases, to the point of violence, just over political differences. And I'm not here to make commentary on any specific issues. I, you know what the issues are. But if you listen to much of the media, there's no chance to ever get along. Don't believe it. It is possible to have unity. This is the place where it should start. In Christ's church. We can demonstrate unity to the world. It can start here. It can start right here at Wagner Community Church. What if, in our area, whenever someone asked about someone else about this church, words of harmony and unity were spoken? What if, when others tried to bring up the mud in the past, we cheerfully and honestly said, we love those who left, we who remain are unified in Christ? What if each of us decided that the reputations of individuals in this body are our responsibility? What if we considered it an offense to Christ to speak badly of others in the congregation? What if we, when we heard someone speaking badly of a fellow believer, countered it with something good to say about them? Most of us, I hope, would never allow someone to speak badly of our spouse in front of us. I hope we would never allow anyone to speak evil about our families. And I hope that we would never allow someone to speak evil of our church family. And whenever I think about how the church broadly and our local church has had folks go out and speak slander of one another, I think of how much this grieves our Lord Jesus Christ. He had a great concern for unity in the church. And it was because Jesus linked the unity of the church to our witness to the world. He wanted the church so unified that it would cause people to believe that he was sent from God. And I'll take that to you. In his prayer in John 17, it's called the High Priestly Prayer. It's the last prayer that's recorded in Scripture before Jesus was taken to trial. And here's what he said. He said, I do not ask for these only. First he was praying specifically for the uh, apostles. And now he switches to start praying for who? Us. I ask not for these, the apostles only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
See what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that if the church shows unity, harmony, whatever you want to call it, to the world, that people would believe that he was sent. And then he continues on in verse 22. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them. That they may be one. Here it is again. Even as we are one. He, he wants the church to be as unified as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of the Trinity are unified. So that the world may know you sent them, sent me and love them even as you love me. Jesus says something twice. You pay attention. 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, that you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in It's a serious request that Jesus makes to the Father. That he wants those who believe in him to be so unified that the world looks and says it must be true. That they would look to the gospel and see the church unify and say it must be true. Because that doesn't happen in the world outside. All of Scripture is God's word to us. If the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write about harmony in church, not just here, but in several places, and if it was high enough on Jesus' mind that his last recorded prayer before going to trial was a great concern for unity in the church, then shouldn't we heed these teachings? Oughtn't we to be doers of this word? not hearers only. Shouldn't we be constantly evaluating whether we are living in such harmony? Shouldn't we examine our own hearts to see if we're bearing with one another? Shouldn't we be identifying ourselves with that we owe each other a debt of burden of love? So don't leave this message in the pew this morning with the message alone. Think about it. Humble yourself before God. Think about your part in the harmony of your relationship with God. Think of your part in harmony with your relationship with your spouse, with your parents, with your children. And think of your part in harmony in your relationships in the church. If in humility you have repentance to do before God and the people don't, Turn off the news that speaks of division, no cure for the hospitalities, and turn to scripture that tells us unity is possible. If you want to see it in our nation, it's got to start here. And as a church, as the church under Christ, we bear the responsibility to show the unity Lord, thank you for your word this morning. I pray that as we receive it and as we evaluate it, Lord, may you reveal to us by your Holy Spirit where we need to work, where we need to live. Lord, help us to live this out. Help us to be people of the word who keep going back where it's true. 
that we can discern the other lives around us. In Jesus' name.